Welcome, Mr. Ron Blue. Ron? Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Bob. I do have 13 grandkids, five kids, and about two or three weeks ago, Judy and I were talking, we said, you know, the youngest is 35 now, and the oldest is 46, and we said, are we done? Because it seems like they never leave, they come back, they've always got a crisis. In fact, uh, I think if I were going to write another book, uh, it would be on parenting adult children. Nobody wrote that book. Yeah, that's a big deal. Well, that would take me off my message. I, uh, when Todd Harper called me to ask me if I would speak, uh, I said, sure. Uh, when and where, and he said, well, Austin. I said, well, sure, I can do that. I've got three grandsons that live in Austin, also a son and daughter-in-law. And um, so when, <laughs> when, when am I speaking? He said, well, you're the last speaker. Oh. I said, well, what am I, what, what am I to do? And he said, well, you're the principal speaker on Saturday morning. So I'm a numbers guy, and uh, I went and looked up the word principal. And that's what's left when all the interest is gone. (laughs) So you all can go take a break if you want. I'll go ahead and go through my talk. But but what you're going to find is that what I have to say has already been said more than once, which is a really good thing. Um, I've been at a stage of life where I turned 71 this year. I did turn 71. And uh, uh, God has been real good to Judy and I with our children, our grandchildren, and and our life. Uh, But I had some emergency heart surgery uh, last August, um, and they told me in the heart cath room that I may not live until the weekend without it. I I had plans for the weekend. (laughs) But I've come to look at old age a little bit uh, with, with greater perspective. And so I've been reading a little bit on old age, and there's uh, some people that live down in, a lot of pe- retired people and old people live in Florida. And there was this lady living, sitting on a bench in Fort Lauderdale, very elderly, and this very elderly man came and sat at the other end of the bench. And uh, he said, or she said, do you live around here? And he said, well, I used to. She said, oh, where, when did you leave? He said, about 35 years ago. She said, where have you been? He said, well, I've been in prison. She said, what for? He said, for murdering my wife. She said, so you're single then? (laughs) One more old person joking. Down at a retirement home in Orlando this time, in a where they have a community meals together and around tables, and the people always sat at the same table, and this uh, elderly man had his eye on an elderly woman across the table, and finally he got up the nerve, and during dinner he said, would you marry me? And she said, well, sure, sure, I would marry you, I would love to. So they went back, finished their dessert, went back to their rooms, and the next morning when he woke up, he couldn't remember whether she said yes or no. So he called her, and he said, do you remember that I asked you to marry me last night? She said, oh, sure. He said, well, forgive me, but I can't remember what your answer was. And she said, well, it was, yes, yes, of course I will. 
And thanks for calling because I couldn't remember who asked. (laughs) I've got two or three others, but perhaps I better start. (laughs) You know, as I've listened, uh, and Judy and I have been here since the beginning of the conference, so we've heard the speakers and we've heard the testimonies and uh, met so many people. Um, And there's a consistency Uh, of everything that you heard from Renee just now, a real consistency. And in every case, there's a spiritual conviction, a spiritual dimension that results in something. And my role in life has been, I've had the privilege of helping people like Renee and like Jeff and like Pete Oaks and others that have spoken in planning and managing their finances so that they can do exactly what they've already been convicted to do, what God has put on their heart. So I've helped people make uh, or give away a lot of money uh, over the years. But God showed me something right at the beginning of my career in helping Christians plan and manage their money. When Judy and I and three other couples went to Africa, and we were outside Nairobi, and there was this African pastor, he lived in a mud hut, thatch roof, probably one or two acres of ground, and we were sitting on a hill uh, looking at his mud hut, and we were having a conversation, and uh, I looked over there, there was a pile of stone, and there was, uh, he had five children, they all lived in that one room, and it was about a two-year-old that was playing on that pile of stone, and uh, she looked to be really content. And I thought, I don't know how she could be content. It's Saturday morning, cartoons are on, and she doesn't have a television. How could she be so content? Because all she had to play with was a battery, a size D battery. A little bit later in the conversation, I asked the pastor, I said, what's the greatest barrier to evangelism in this part of the world? And I expected communication is a big problem, finances is a big problem, tribalism is a big problem, Something is a big problem. And his response really set me back, but it also set me on track. Because he said the biggest barrier to the gospel in this part of the world is materialism. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, if you have a mud hut, you want a stone hut. You have a thatch roof, you want a metal roof. You have one acre, you want two acres. You have one cow, you want two cows. And that made me realize, allowed me to realize that what we think is an American disease is not an American disease. It's a disease of the heart. And I think it's the stronghold of Satan. I've gotten new appreciation for the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. And that means that when we take our money and we use it for kingdom purposes, the gates of hell will not prevail. And the gates of hell is materialism and consumerism. That's the thing that motivates, and it's not unique to America. So what I want to do is to kind of take the spiritual dimension and say, so what? And my uh, opportunity would be to kind of take all of the spiritual, God owns it all and how much is enough, and kind of help you think about it from an application standpoint. Now, what I'm going to share, however, is not prescriptive. It's going to be principles. And it's not a formula. It's always a process. And it's a process that never ends. So don't hear me say, if you do this, 
you're done because you're not. All you've done is taken the next step to the rest of your life. And, and it never, ever ends. God changes our circumstances, changes our minds, changes the opportunities that are there. And so don't hear me say this is a formula or this is a prescription. What we're talking about is a process and we're talking about principles. And I've kind of titled this Maximized Generosity. And the way I got going on this talk was I said, what could I share with these people about maximizing their generosity? How would you do, how would I as a financial advisor help you to maximize your generosity? How would I help you give away as much as you possibly could? Because I've had the privilege of doing that for almost 35 years now, of helping people do that. And basically it comes down to biblically financial wisdom applied and it's depicted by this iceberg diagram. You've seen this in a lot of situations. But what that is communicating is the why, which is nine-tenths of the iceberg, is the, is the valuable part. But 100% of the advertising and 100% of the counsel and 100% of what preachers talk about is the how. They're telling us how to do things, and, uh, be it the advertising or whatever. And if you do these things, you will experience contentment and financial freedom and all those things that people presumably want. But the how is only 10%. The why is the ones, is the area that people have not necessarily identified. What's below the line? What does God's Word have to say about finances? And I found... Uh, that the result of maximized generosity is, first of all, freedom from financial fears. I'm, in the, I'm starting with my conclusion. When we get all done, this is where we're going to end up, is that when generosity is maximized, it gives you freedom from financial fears. Secondly, it gives you freedom from financial confusion. Think about what Renee just said. Is her life simpler or more complex when she decided to live on a quarter of her income? Well, basically, it's more simple. She's got less to be concerned about. There's something that I would call the paradox of prosperity, and the paradox of prosperity was illustrated in our life that when Judy and I got married, we lived in a trailer. It was 28 feet long, uh, 8 feet wide, 6 feet tall. You could sit on the pot, cook dinner, and do the ironing without moving. <laughs> I didn't, but Judy did, but when... <laughs> But when she did the ironing, she set the ironing board up in the living room, I had to get out of the trailer or back in the bedroom because there wasn't room for the ironing board and me and her in the living room. That's how we started. We had a car. We had a few clothes. Once in a while, we had food. You know what we didn't have, what we didn't have to do? We didn't have to decide where we were going to eat, what restaurant we were going to go to. We didn't have to decide where to invest our money. We didn't have to decide what clothes we were going to buy. We didn't have to decide what cars we were going to buy. Well... 48 years later, we just celebrated our 48th anniversary last week, and 48 years later, now we've had five kids, 13 grandkids, at one time we had two homes, I don't know how many cars I bought, how much private school education I paid for, how many investments I made, how much college education I paid for, but my life today is far more complex than what it was when we got married 48 years ago. And that's the paradox of prosperity. The paradox of prosperity says the more you have, the more options you have. Therefore, the more confusion is brought into your life. Because now you've got to make decisions. Now, I'm not saying that having 
much is wrong. I'm just saying that the idea of having more is the answer is wrong because it's not. It causes more confusion. Second, thirdly, maximized generosity done with the husbands and wives gives you freedom from marital conflict over money. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I could say, how many of you here have ever had a disagreement with your spouse about money? And I know that Judy would raise her hand because we have a lot of disagreement about money. She does not understand (laughs) how you could possibly not have a spreadsheet to make a decision. God invented Excel. She says to me, and I've heard it, don't ever put me on a spreadsheet. I don't want to see your spreadsheets. But she still can make decisions. It's beyond my comprehension. You know what? I do have one joke that relates to that. This was a um, teacher who was teaching French to English-speaking people, And she was telling them that in France that nouns are lost something and uh, verbs are, or uh, masculine is law and verbs is lay or something like that. And so she said that in, in French, it's either masculine or feminine. So one of the students raised his hand and he said, well, what gender is computer? She looked it up, and it wasn't in her dictionary, so she said, I don't know. So she divided the class into men and women and said, you've got 30 minutes. Now come up with the reasons why the gender should be feminine or it should be masculine. So the men's group decided that computers should definitely be of the feminine gender, lock computer, because no one but their creator understands their internal logic. The native language they use to communicate with other computers is incomprehensible to the rest of us. Even the smallest mistakes are stored in long-term memory for possible later retrieval. (laughs) And as soon as you make a commitment to one, you find yourself spending half your paycheck on accessories. (laughs) The women's group said that computers should be masculine, lay computer, because... In order to get their attention, you have to turn them on. (laughs) Two, they have a lot of data, but they're clueless. Third, they're supposed to help you solve the problem, but half the time they are the problem. And lastly, the women said, as soon as you commit to one, you realize that if you'd have waited just a little bit longer, you could have gotten a better model. Lastly, here's the end, contentment. And I would say that if there is a measure of financial success, it would be in contentment. And that's biblical. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So maximum generosity in my 35 years of experience of helping people maximize their generosity has resulted in these four things. And I think that they're worth pursuing, and I think they're biblical. No, I know they're biblical. Well, here's, here's what the problem is, and then we'll t- talk about the solution. First of all, the three goals that drive most financial behavior is success, significance, or security. And I can guarantee you that you can't accumulate enough money to feel successful, feel significant, or feel secure. 
You can maybe be successful, significant, and secure, but you can never feel it. So no amount of money is going to give you contentment. All it, 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 it's not wrong again, but you can't feel success, significance, and security. And everyone is asking these questions, whether they're young or whether they're old. Will I ever have enough? Will it continue to be enough? And by the way, how much is enough? Those are the three questions. And here's the bottom line. The financial decisions that you make are the most objective measurement of spirituality that there is. If you believe that God owns it all, then when you spend his money, in effect, you're making a spiritual decision. Now, again, that's not wrong, but it is true. And I, I tell people all the time, if you give me your checkbook and your tax returns, I can tell you what your values are. I can tell you what your priorities are. I can tell you what your goals are. I can write an awful lot about your life. It's the only area of the Christian life where we keep a record through all of those documentations. We don't keep a record of the rest of our, we don't keep a record typically of where we spend our time. We may have a calendar, but we don't go back and evaluate it necessarily. So the financial principles are always symptomatic and they're the only objective measurement of spirituality. And here's something, three things to remember. Biblical financial principles have three characteristics. They're always right. They're always relevant, and they're never going to change. I tell the financial advisors that I have the privilege of leading and, and training, you need to put on your business card. My advice is always right, it's always relevant, and it's never going to change. Now, compliance departments don't agree with that. They don't like that. But the reality is that if you follow biblical principles, those are the three characteristics. Those are biblical principles of any area of life, of course. But in finances, we have more than any other area specifically in the Word. Uh, Crown Ministries at one time said there's 2,350 verses in the Bible dealing with money and money management. And as, you, as I read Scripture, like I did this morning, everything out of there comes out and says it, it works in the financial life. It's not telling me how to make money, but it is telling me how to think about money. And so biblical principles are not difficult at all. God, Jesus said this. In Matthew 7, it was the uh, who builds his house on the sand or who builds his house on the rock. And he said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine has two choices. You can act on them or you don't act on them. Those are the only two choices. If you read God's word, then you either act on it or you don't. Secondly, you have a consequence. You can have a house built on a rock or you can have a house built on sand. I don't know how many here from Texas, but um, this is a picture of the results of Hurricane Ike, I think it was Ike, that came through Galveston just a few years ago. This house was what was left on Galveston Island, and this is another picture of it. Now, when I saw that, I said, that's it. House built on sand or house built on rock. That house, the story behind it is, as I understand it, that these people had experienced a hurricane before and they'd lost their home, so when they rebuilt, they made it hurricane-proof. And they received damage, of course, but their house was still standing. 
Now think of the analogy there. In 2008, when we had the decline, uh, and any other times that we've seen declines in the economy or economic catastrophe, you may get damaged, but you're never going to lose your home. Again, an analogy. If you've done everything that you can from a biblical perspective, and I'm going to give you some biblical perspective here in just a second. Here's the three fundamental questions all of us have to ask and answer. Number one, who owns it? You've heard that multiple times in the last uh, two days. Is the, and we're going to drill down on that for just a second. Secondly, how much is enough? We've heard that multiple times also. And thirdly, is the next steward chosen and prepared? Now, chances are I'll be able to cover the first two. I can't cover the third one. But I have written a book on that one. And uh, you've got it on your table, and you may have that book. But it goes through the process of choosing the next steward or stewards uh, and helping to prepare them. Let's look at who owns it. I think that there's five conscious point-in-time decisions that I've seen people make when moving from spontaneous or minimal giving to intentional or maximized giving. Five decisions I think people make. Conscious, point-in-time decisions. And you heard it even here on this last testimony by Renee. First of all, we know when we were saved. I trust him for my salvation. It's a point-in-time decision. I think at some point you make the decision that he will have total control of my life. That's another decision. I can be saved, but the decision to say he will have total control of my life. He is Lord of all. And if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And that's a decision. And there are implications to that decision. And one of the implications spiritually is what have I been prepared for? Ephesians 2.10, the works prepared beforehand. And I I think it was, uh, maybe it was on the first night, someone talked about Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 4.1. Live worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So once he's Lord, then I ask myself the question, am I where he wants me to be? Am I doing what he wants me to do? And that's a decision that maybe is made more than once. Uh, just as a side note, I don't believe retirement is biblical, but I do believe rehirement is. And God has prepared a lot of people to move from multiple careers. I'm in my sixth career, best I can define right now. And I see it lasting for a long time, but there may be a seventh out there that I don't know about. Now, my mission and my purpose are the same, but how God is working them out has changed over time. So what am I called to do? And then I don't think the God-owns-it-all decision is made uh, until you've made these other decisions. And when we say that God owns it all, there are some implications to that. But it's a point-in-time, specific decision that says he owns it. And when you make that decision, there are some implications to it. First of all, every spending decision is a spiritual decision because he owns it. Now, that alone will change your life if you think of it. Again, God is not looking to restrict me. He's looking to give me freedom. And I think one of the interesting things in the Old Testament is that one of the ties, I think it's in Deuteronomy 24, one of the ties suggested in the Old Testament was uh, you brought the, the, the offering to the temple or sanctuary, 
But if you couldn't get there, the Bible says, then sell your offering and have a party. It literally says that. In the, Bi- in the Baptist Bible, it says, buy some beer. It says that in the Bible. And, and that's the point. God's not trying to limit me by saying that every spending decision is a spiritual decision. What he wants me to do, according to 1 Timothy 6, is to enjoy, to be generous, but also to enjoy. And I think that those two go together. Generosity and enjoyment go together. You almost can't have one without the other. Second thing is this is the only area of the Christian life that can't be faked. And I've already talked a little bit about that. And thirdly, God can take whatever he wants whenever he wants it. So when we have a market decline, when we have a hurricane, it's okay. God is not surprised, he's not worried, and he can take it. Well, again, think of the freedom that comes from that. If, in fact, you believe that uh, and honor that and work your life out that way. So to say that God owns it all is a freeing thing, not a restrictive thing. It frees me up. And you know, I don't know how much is too much, but I know, uh, or how much is enough rather, but I do know how much is too much. And how much is too much is when I take whatever he's given me and go like this. When I hold it, I have lost my freedom because it now controls me. And the only way I can have freedom is to let go. That's the principle. And when I let go and I hold it like this, then God is free to put in whatever he wants or take out whatever he wants whenever he wants. It's all his. All I do is hold what he's given me with an open hand. It's all his. Biblical stewardship to me, holistically, is the use of God-given gifts and resources, time, talent, treasure, truth, relationships, etc., for the accomplishment of God-given goals and objectives. So it's way broader than finances. It's my time, it's my relationships, it's the truth he's given me, um, it's the treasure that he's given me, it's the talents that he's given me. Uh, As Renee said again, everything I got came from him. Or maybe it was Bob that said that. I can't remember. They look a lot alike. But somebody has said, everything came from him. Therefore, everything is to be used for his purposes, his honor, and his glory. That's stewardship, and that is the Christian life. I think that's why Jesus spoke so much about money. Well, money is not a measure of self-worth, it's not a reward for godly living, it's not a guarantee of contentment, and it's not a measure of success. Those are some of the knots, and I've got verses there, and we could spend a bunch of time on each one of those. But let me talk about what money is. Money's a tool. It's a tool to be used, and it's a tool that God uses on me. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I've learned to be content with whether I have a little bit or whether I have a lot. In 1 Timothy 6 that Todd read the first evening, it's to be used, willing to share, generosity, so that others might be encouraged in their faith. Money is a tool. Now, here's the freeing thing about thinking about what is more spiritual about tithing than taking a vacation. And the answer is nothing. 
if he owns it all, am I not using money as a tool to accomplish his purposes? I think it was Pete Oakes that talked about social capital and spiritual capital. I use money to build into my family. I use it to perhaps build the business that God has entrusted to me. But it's a tool to be used, and it's not more spiritual to say I give it as opposed to I spend it. Because every spending decision is a spiritual decision. When you think that way, it changes the way you think about money. It, it helps the hoarder, as Jeff talked about yesterday, say money is to be used to accomplish certain things. But it also helps the spender to say, am I spending what God has entrusted to me for eternal significance? And eternal significance can be my family. It can be my business. It can be the relationships. Several of you brought guests here and paid their way. That's money being used as a tool to accomplish something. And it is just as spiritual as the money that I give that is charitable money or looked at as charitable money. Secondly, money is a test. Again, Paul said, I've learned to be content, so God may give me a whole bunch or he may not give me much. But money is a test, and I need to look at it that way in terms of how I handle it. And thirdly, money is a testimony. The world has a right to look to you and I as believers and say, they're not better, but they're different. And when we have times of testing, like we've gone through in the last five years, which incidentally, I've lived through a lot. I was born right after, World, right after Pearl Harbor. Ten years later, I was, uh, the uh, Berlin uh, blockade happened, the Korean War happened. Ten years after that, when I was in college, Nikita Khrushchev was banging his shoe on the table saying, we will bury you. Ten years after that, we went off the gold standard. In 1972, Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. It was a bestseller. Uh, in 1982, we had double-digit inflation. Uh, if you remember that, we saw the last fixed-rate mortgage that would ever be in existence in 1982. 1992, stock market was at 3,000. Most people thought we would collapse in the 90s. Nobody foresaw Y2K, nor did they foresee the dot-com uh, revolution. And then when I turned 60 uh, in 2002, was right after 9-11. And then I turned 70 in 2012. Well, there are several conclusions. One is that I'm a bad luck. Um, but, the, but here's the point. Economic uncertainty is certain. We know that. We know that. But we keep thinking that it's going to get better. And if we change the political structure, it'll change. If we change certain things, it'll change. If I read God's word right, we live in a fallen world and it isn't going to get better. And we are going to have economic cycles in every business and in every culture. So the reality is if God's word is always right, always relevant, and will never change, when we have the downturns, I can ask myself, have I done everything I could to prepare for that? And the answer would be yes, I followed his principles. Therefore, I've done everything I could do. There are certain things that are just out of my control. So downturns give me an opportunity to give a testimony to the world. But you know what else? So does immense wealth give me an opportunity to make a testimony to the world. It says wealth doesn't control me. It's not my God. It is to be used. I may be a steward over immense wealth, 
But that's not me. That's just something I have been entrusted with. So money is a tool, it's a test, and it's a tremendous testimony to the rest of the world. That's the opportunity. When I look at an audience like this, we happen to be on the, on the end of the wealth spectrum. Well, what's our attitude about money? Because the rest of the world says, if I had what you have, I would be content. And the answer to that is, no, you wouldn't, unless you're following God's principles. We have an opportunity to make a testimony to the rest of the world. Well, there's four decisions. What's the last one? The last decision is, how much is enough? Once you've made the stewardship decision, God owns it all, then you begin to ask the question, how much is enough? And it's not until you've answered that question where you can think of generosity, maximize generosity. Kyle Van, who's here and was here at the last time we were in Austin and spoke, and he called it, God showed me that I'm a pipeline, not a bucket. Randy Alcorn calls it the treasure principle. Send it on ahead. It's the last decision that you make relative to your finances where it really is gone in the sense of God owns it all and now I'm using all of his resources for his purposes. Well, here's maximum generosity. We've talked about the spiritual side of it, five decisions, but it also requires a financial realignment. And I'm going to talk about that for just a few minutes. And as I thought about this also, the, if, in order to have maximum generosity, there also has to be uh, relational uh, issues solved. Uh, my mentor, Dr. Howard Hendricks, used to say, God did not give you a spouse to frustrate you, but to complete you. And I have not seen anybody maximize their generosity where husband and wife weren't in agreement with that. Now, does that mean that one or the other of you beats the other one into submission? No. What it means is that God has put us together for the best purposes. So we look, and when we have this conflict over money, be it generosity or any other thing, it is the opportunity to build relationship and to build communication skills. So that has to be there too, and I'm not going to spend any more time on that. Uh, nor am I going to spend any more time on this. But those that uh, give maximally will have a giving plan. <clears throat> they will say, I know where I'm going. And the plan changes, but they know where they're going with their giving. And it becomes intentional as opposed to spontaneous. And lastly, they have accountability. Biblically wise counsel. People are uh, surprised uh, when I tell them that I have a financial planner. I've written 20 books on financial planning. I've spoken on it. I've done a whole bunch of things. I've answered thousands of questions about finances. But you know what? I can't hold myself accountable. And so I required at Ronald Blue and Company every financial advisor to have a financial planner because if they're going to be giving the advice, they better be living it. And so Judy and I met with our financial planner two weeks ago, as we do two, three times a year, because I can't hold myself accountable nor can I necessarily ask the right questions of my wife. And when you have somebody in your life, Pete says that it was a group of other entrepreneurs, but you need somebody else in your life that is holding you accountable. And I would say this in terms of professional advisors. If they are not, if they haven't made those five decisions themselves, they can't take you there. They can't help you get there. And I think the ideal financial advisor, in, in addition to their professional competence, 
which I think should be of the highest quality if they are a believer and holding themselves out to be a believer. They understand that every client that they have is a gift from God. And secondly, they understand that they're going to be held accountable to the Lord for the advice that they gave. That's a big deal, and it's kind of terrifying if you're in, uh, in that word. And I would say the third thing, if they're not accountable to somebody, then they don't necessarily know how to hold you accountable. Kind of my role in life at this point is to try to raise up advisors who have those three characteristics so that people like yourselves can say, I can find somebody that shares my language, shares my values, so when I talk about the Holy Spirit, their eyes glaze over, don't glaze over. When I talk about tithing and generosity and so forth, uh, they don't react. And you know, uh, again, I've been in the financial services world for a long time, and I know this, that most financial professionals have a goal in mind. That's to keep their clients. And what they don't want to do is they don't want to risk a lawsuit. I think a lot of times of attorneys will not necessarily ask the questions that would help you maximize your giving in your wealth transfer plans because they might be subject to a lawsuit themselves from the potential heirs. Uh, most financial advisors that are compensated on some type of uh, uh, tra uh, transactional basis, um, when they help you give away money, they're cutting into their own pocket. As a matter of fact, no matter how they're compensated, uh, that's the case. I, you know, at Ronald Bloom Company, we measure, we didn't measure, we knew how many assets we had under, measure, under management. And I think today it's $7 billion. But the clients of Ronald Balloon Company give over a billion dollars a year away on a current cash basis. That's the measurement of success. We've now got 1,400 other uh, advisors that we're trying to train this way also that could release billions and billions of dollars into the kingdom. Well, how much is enough? The question is, for what? Okay, it's a legitimate question. How much is enough for what? Well, what I want to do is to show you a model that's a way to organize your thinking around the confusion and complexity of the financial world. And it will help you answer the questions, how much is enough and will I ever have enough? You have on your table a diagram, and uh, that is a diagram that I've used for many, many years to help people kind of visualize their finances. Now, you'll notice on that diagram that it's copyrighted. So when you copy it, copy it right, please. <laughs> In other words, it's meant to be used. It's not meant to be stored. And it's a tool. Perhaps it's a tool that you can use with your family. Perhaps it's a tool that will help you. Perhaps it's a tool that will help a husband and wife. Perhaps it's a tool that you can use to teach others about finances. Because let me walk you through it. And it doesn't take long to walk through it. First of all, the income comes in. And there's only five things you can do with it. Pay off your debt, pay your taxes, save, invest it, give it away, or living expenses. That's all you can do with the money, that, that, with, the, with the income that comes in. Five things. And the way you figure out how much your living expenses are, when you know how much are in the other four buckets, you know what's left and all the rest of it's being spent for living expenses, be it clothes, cars, education, whatever it might be. So... How much is enough for each of those buckets is question number one. Well, you save and invest because I think that there's really only about six long-term uses of money. 
Maybe it's financial independence. Maybe it's family needs, be it education or be it uh, taking care of adult children. Uh, no, adult parents uh, like us. You know, make sure you got enough there, kids, to take care of us. Maybe it's financial independence. Maybe it's freedom from debt. Maybe it's charitable giving. And perhaps a lot of people, as they've accumulated a lot of wealth, begin to use that wealth for new businesses for kingdom purposes. I think that's what we saw with Pete. That was a bucket that he was allocating money to. When you look at that, then, there's only 11 places that your money can go. And the reality is most of us don't have 11. Maybe at the most we would have eight or nine. So I can simplify it when I realize that I'm always going to have the five short-term buckets, but where I'm headed in the long term is the question. Well, how do I figure this all out? I figure out where I'm spending my money in the short term. And then, what are my goals? And sometimes it'll take a couple of years uh, to figure that out. I found that when people want to maximize their generosity, it's a two- to a five-year process because of financial realignment. They may have money in these various buckets, but they may not be in the right bucket. And incidentally, the objective here is to fill the buckets before you kick the bucket. (laughs) Just had to try that one out. That wasn't good enough to try again. I think if we look at this, what are the priority uses of money? Well, first of all, you have to pay off your debt. That's a priority. You have to pay your taxes. It's a good thing to save and invest. It's a good thing to give. And what's left is what I can spend on my living expenses. The younger Americans get into trouble because they spend everything on the right-hand side. They have to pay their taxes. They use debt to fund their living expenses. Therefore, they don't have enough to save and invest uh, or to give. And if they only had more income, they would be okay. And it's rarely isn't an income problem. It's almost always a spending problem with younger people. So in the long term, what are my priorities? Maybe it's lifestyle desires, second home, new home, whatever it may be. Maybe it's the family needs, family education. Maybe it's family or financial independence or freedom from debt or charitable giving. Uh, or a new business. But think about this. If I know how it's coming in and where I'm allocating it and why I'm investing for the long term, immediately I have simplification, but I also have answered the question, how much is enough? Because when those bottom buckets are full or eliminated or full, I have enough. The second question then is, so what am I going to do with it when it goes beyond that? And this is where I've been able to help clients over time maximize their giving because they know how much is in the bottom buckets. They know that they're full. Therefore, they know how much is enough. Therefore, they know that, or they know that they have to answer the question, so what am I going to do with the rest of it? It's a really important thing uh, to have that. Um, And once you have all this in place, the fourth thing you do is you just control it uh, and you monitor it. So there's five steps. Again, this is a uh, kind of a help people thinking about their money and plan and manage their money. And here are some principles. I was testifying before a congressional subcommittee about 20 years ago now, and Senator Dodd from uh, Connecticut, he said, what would you tell the American family? And I said, Senator, I would tell them spend less than they earn, avoid the use of debt, build some savings or liquidity into their financial situation for the emergencies, 
And I didn't say this, but I would say to Christian audience, rejoice in generosity. Now, if you look at these first, uh, or the last one is set long-term goals. If I look at the four out of the five, take out the generosity piece, I can do that whether I'm a believer or not. When I add the generosity, I really add the freedom aspect of that. But what's going to change there if you have more money or less money? Nothing. The principles don't change. And when you think about money management, it isn't any more difficult than that. Live within your income, avoid debt, certainly consumer debt, build liquidity, set long-term goals, and give it away. I don't have to know any more about money management than that to be successful, even if I stick it in the bank and let it accumulate. There aren't any more principles than that. So now let's talk about, conclude it, with maximizing giving. Looking at this chart, how do we maximize giving? First thing that you do is that you begin, you look at the top bucket and you see the should give. You ask yourself the question, according to 1 Corinthians 16.2, give as God has prospered you, how much should we give? And that's an amount that can be dynamic, but I would say that give in proportion to your income is what 1 Corinthians 16.2 says. And that means that as your income goes up, in reality, so should your giving as a percentage of your income. We found that the clients that we had, the lowest level client that we worked with, over time would reach 15% giving, and when they went over a million dollars of income, they had an average giving of 22%. I found, in my experience in working with people of wealth, that when you've developed a plan to give, giving went up as much as five times. Pretty common that it would go up five times in two to five years because there was intentionality to it and you understood how much was in each of the buckets. So the next thing, and down at the bottom, let let me look at it this way. The top is the income statement giving. The bottom is the balance sheet giving for us accountants that understand that. So I could give out of any of those buckets because I have it. Okay, I could take money out of any bucket and give it, and it's right there. Really, there's no faith required. It's just a decision to do that, which is a second level of giving. Well, now as time goes on, if I don't have any debt, then that bucket is eliminated. I'm not going to start, if I take myself, I'm not going to start any new businesses at age 71. Uh, We don't have any family needs that we know of that are not taken care of or wouldn't be taken care of. Lifestyle, uh, you reach a certain point and you have less rather than more and we've kind of reached that point. Financial independence, you you save and plan and manage and invest till you're financially independent. Uh, A lot of people don't have any debt and that only leaves the charitable giving bucket but that's covered up above So if you look at that, then as income comes in over time, you could give way beyond what you were giving because you filled all the buckets, they're eliminated, and now you can say, you know what, we're going to pay taxes and spend it on our living expenses and give. Again, that's what Renee said when she said we set her budget as a nurse, and then all she has to do is pay, I, I I wondered if she's, figuring out her taxes. Somebody, a financial planner, needs to talk to her. 
uh, would be helpful. But you could give, or if when, when it's all done, and this is the simplified life. I've only got three places that my money can go. Think how simple that is. That's why you can experience freedom and contentment as you plan and manage it God's way because you can get to that point. As a matter of fact, you may already be at that point, just don't know it. It's not at all uncommon either. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says this, And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you excel in every good work. So how much is enough? If God is able to make every grace overflow so that in every way, always having everything you need, I would say this, what you have is enough. If you believe that. At this point in time, you have enough. Now, as time changes, you may need to get, have more and things may change. But every one of us has enough. And here's the conclusion. When I'm dependent upon God, I will always have everything that I need. And when I am dependent on money, I will never have enough. That's the bottom line. I'll close with one more joke. Okay? Just because I saw it here and I thought, this is a really good one. And I think I can tie it in. Since we're in Austin, and there are a lot of homeless people in Austin, and uh, uh, my, one of my sons-in-law sent this to me. He said, a man was walking down the street when he was accosted by a particularly dirty and shabby-looking homeless man who asked him for a couple of dollars for dinner. The man took out his wallet, extracted his dollars, and said, if I give you this money, will you buy some beer with it instead of dinner? No, I had to stop drinking years ago, the homeless man replied. Will you use it to go fishing instead of buying food? No, I don't waste my time fishing, the homeless man said. I need to spend all my time trying to stay alive. Will you spend this on green fees at a golf course instead of food, the man asked. Are you nuts, replied the homeless man. I haven't played golf in 20 years. Well, the man said, I'm not going to give you the money. Instead, I'm going to take you home for a shower and a terrific dinner cooked by my wife. The homeless man was astounded. Won't your wife be furious with you doing that? The man replied, that's okay. It's important for her to see what a man looks like after he's given up drinking, fishing, and golf. (laughs) Thank you.